Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm going to start it and it's the summer of 68. It may sound like a song and it is in California. Evelyn and her husband Lenny have arrived at Evergreen Valley, a rural Eden. The book is Beautiful Revolutionary and the author is Laura Elizabeth Woollett. Well, Laura, welcome back. Thank you. The last time you were in here, you were in here, you talked about a series of short stories and it was called The Love of a Bad Man. And I couldn't believe how many um, women had fallen for bad men. But we don't quite know what, what's going to happen to Evelyn Linden. She's quite worldly. How did she come about her insights and opinions? Well, Evelyn is 23 at the beginning of the story, so she's just graduated from college. Um, she has grown up in a family which is very progressive and left-wing in their values. Um, her father is a Methodist minister, but um, the kind of minister who actually practices what he preaches. And so she's grown up with a quite political upbringing and um, she retains those values as a young adult. Uh, she's educated at the University of California in Davis. Um, she spends a year in France on exchange and gets engaged to a French man um, but breaks it off. And um, then she finds herself kind of back in California again and um, and married to Lenny. Married to Lenny, yeah. And it's because of Lenny that they're actually they're in Evergreen Valley. What's he done? Well, Lenny, what, is, what has he not done, more to the point? Yeah, more to the point. Um, Lenny is a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Uh, he's a pacifist in his values, and um, he's managed to get alternative, alternative uh, civilian service at a mental hospital in um, rural Northern California, which um, is what he's doing rather than going to war. Mm-hmm. And he also smokes quite a bit of dope. Yeah, he sure does. However, the first person Evelyn and Lenny meet when they come into Evergreen Valley is Eugene Luce, and this is a bit from the book, the redneck cop who welcomed them to town with a cross-examination and didn't notice their marijuana plant in the back seat. (laughs) Evelyn is looking for something more in this township, not the white Methodist church, but she's drawn into a white tent with the name of the Peace Temple. And she wants to become part of the community. And it wasn't just the tent that drew them there. It was this black-haired man. He was cool like a cowboy or Elvis. And he could foresee things. He changed their lives and they both fell in love with him. Who was he? He was the Reverend Jim Jones. (sighs) Oh, Jim Jones. Well, prior to 9-11, the Jonestown Massacre was the largest loss of American civil life in a single deliberate incident. This happened in Jonestown, Guana, South America. Look, um, Laura, how did you become interested? You Because know, the depth of research into this book is phenomenal. It's such a good read. But what led it? Well, um, you mentioned my short story collection earlier, and 
my research for this book really began with that short story collection. Um, I began, you know, because it was all about the wives and girlfriends of notorious bad guys. Um, Jim Jones is one of the most notorious that you could think of. And um, I started looking at the women who were close to him, and I found two women. Um, one was his wife, Marceline, and the other was Carolyn, who was... Um, his extramarital partner for 10 years and she was actually probably the most powerful person in people's temple after him and um, had a lot of insights into his decisions which his wife didn't have so she actually compelled me and I wanted to write about her but I just found her really difficult to capture in a first person short story. Uh, so historical fiction and we follow through some of the follow of the families right through to the end. But you've divided the book, Beautiful Revolutionary, into three parts. The first is how Jim Jones actually builds his congregation. He had a cause. What was his cause? What was the cause of the Peace Temple? It, it's People's Temple, actually. Um, oh, sorry. And, well, what they stood for really was social equality and uh, racial equality in particular. Um, so they were really very much a church of their time. Um, they wanted to attract people of all races and to show that all races were equal and um, could live together side by side peacefully and equally. So this, this whole socialism, this mm -hmm. breakdown of the uh, capitalist America. And uh, so to promote this, there were these great big bus trips. You know, this is California, but they did bus trips across to Boston and New York, collecting followers mm -hmm. in rather interesting ways. <laughs> There's something about chicken gillets. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jones's justification for that was um, people would be drawn in by faith healings. And, um, you know, a lot of people in his inner circle who were actually helping him out were not religious at all. They were atheists and um, pure socialists, really. They were there for the ideology. But um, he knew that he could bring people in with religion and with that kind of um, showy faith healing religion in particular. So he would fake healings and he had a lot of people helping him. Absolutely. And uh, one of the very first call centres, probably. Was this, so was that? Yeah, well, they, they also did a lot of um, fake surveys to get information from people, um, which yeah. he would use in his predictions when he was on stage. And oh, yes. He, he just had so much charisma. You know, that he could draw people in. And this is how he explained things too. You know, he was a married man. How did he how did he, did he engineer the breakup of Evelyn and Lenny's marriage? Because well, that brought in somebody very interesting. Oh well he actually um yeah, he he was attracted to Evelyn mm. and um he kind of, you know, would visit her and talk to her and um got to know who she was and um, got into her head, basically. Um, but to ease the breakup, he also arranged another woman for Lenny um, in order to, you know, facilitate the breakup and make sure it stayed that way. And then Rosalind, his wife, had mm -hmm. to be happy with the whole arrangement too. Yeah, and his justification was basically that um, she was sick, she had problems with her back, and so she wasn't, you know, a fit... Wife, wife, and he could be, um, you know, active outside his marriage. He also did a lot of one-to-one -one counselling mm -hmm. with young women. Yeah. <laughs> so 
and and his own libido. How did he feel about it? Well, he lacked to justify it and promote it. And um, why, don't, why don't we just hear a little bit <laughs> yeah, about just, you know how he's going to talk about this? Well, this is from a section um, after Jones has kind of broken up Evelyn and Lenny's marriage, but he's also moved on to Lenny's second wife. Um, and he's standing in front of a group of his um, inner circle, you could say, and justifying his actions. He says, I'm your leader, and when you're leader, people make demands. Everyone wants a piece of you. I'm not saying, oh, sure, I could take every sister in this room tonight like that. He clicks his fingers. And not just the sister's mind, because there have been others. I mean, what I'm saying's, I got the prowess. I'm the only true heterosexual man alive. Sister Chera got that right. But the sexual act don't bring me pleasure. What's underneath your clothes, that doesn't mean nothing to me. Because that's not my highest love for you. It pains me, darlings, when you're so weak you can't think of anything higher. Oh, gee. Look, some of the lines in this book, you know, from Jim are just phenomenal. You know, how he, how he justifies his uh, wayward behaviour, shall we say. Well, and of course, you know, by book two... Eugene Luce's daughter, Bobby, is belted, belted for kissing a girl, not because it was a lesbian act, but because the girl was not Temple. Mm-hmm. And she meets Wayne Budd. Now, he's a coloured man who's part of Jim Jones's personal security. Now, why would Jim need security? Well, he um, believes that or tells his congregation that he will be assassinated because he, mm. he you know, stands for these values which are controversial and um, he wants to, you know, maintain that image and that he is important and, um, you know, an important person is a person who has their own security team. Yes, and of course the security team also learn sort of other things that he's doing which maybe they think aren't quite right. And he seems to be having, you know, these affairs, both homosexual because he does believe that all um, that we are all latent homosexuals anyway. Mm-hmm. So he, he's having this sex with a lot of different people, but they all appear to be white. Yeah. Mm. There's stronger control going on. He's controlling the girl's hair length, and uh, it sort of comes out that these, it's important that they listen to the way he ha- talks about socialism, mm-hmm. not the way they read it, about it. Yeah. So there's the confiscation and burning of books. Why did they have to move out of America? Well, that happened, um, first of all, a young a group of young people defected in 1973 mm. and that was a big blow to the temple because they hadn't really had any major defections before that time. And those people who defected were considered, you know, the, the future of the temple, really. They were bright young people of all different races, um, equal men and women. Um, and after that, he really closed the ranks a bit. Um, he was still concerned with attracting people and getting money, but there was more control going on. Um, and gradually, you know, reports of things mm. that were happening within the temple got out. Um, In, she, fake news, of course, <laughs> when it comes headline, humanitarian of the year or false prophet mm-hmm. in one of the um, local, in one of the newspapers. And uh, in this in this part of the book, there's also a chapter called International Woman of Mystery. <laughs> Yeah, and that that's a chapter all about Evelyn. Um, and by this point, uh, she 
is really high up in the temple and yeah. she's one of the women responsible for moving money out of America into offshore accounts. Really rolled up in tampons? Yeah, they really did that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> mm, right. Well, so that brings us fascinating reading and, you know, really well written in this in this true sense of the uh, Evelyn, the second wife. Brings us to the last part of the book that takes place in the Temple Agricultural Project in South America, The Promised Land. Now, it, it's not easy to get to, is it? No, it's really isolated in the middle of the jungle, um, very dense jungle. But people are still coming. This is a quote from the book by one of the characters. you got to quit questioning every little thing. Have faith, but I like to have evidence. That's what I like when I come to the temple. You get healed, you get fed, you get flown to Guyana even. Yeah. <laughs> so they're still coming. But... Um, there's the news back in uh, the United States that one of the people had defected mm-hmm. to the US Embassy with yeah. money and stories. Yeah, and it's quite a major defection and she's one of Jones's um, inner circle women. So with that knowledge, um, she presents quite a large danger to the temple and its operations. So they know that there's somebody coming to review the, the promised land. Yeah, and that's uh, the congressman. And in the book, I call him Theo Hansen, but he's actually based on a real man called Leo Ryan. And you know that there's a chance for people to leave. And I'm thinking, I'm reading and thinking, oh, who's going to escape? I hope it's that person or this person on their last flight out. Yeah. Oh, golly. So, um, for the rest, we know that it doesn't happen, and this is another crime. Jim isn't slur- slurring or jabbering. His voice is a Goldilocks, just right cocktail of command and sensitivity. Ah, <gasps> oh, look, uh, it's just a fascinating read. This is Laura Elizabeth Woolett. You just you got it all in there. <laughs> I, I tried to. <laughs> So I don't know where your next lady's going to take. Oh, look, would you believe we're having this chat and David's got his hand up? (laughs) Well, I didn't want to interrupt such an interesting interview, but did anyone survive? Oh, yeah, there there were a few survivors. And a lot of people who survived were people who defected from the temple before Jonestown. Others were um, in Georgetown, the political um, capital of Guyana, um, working there, so they were away from Jonestown. Uh, And a few actually escaped, um, either as defectors with the congressman's party or through the jungle, but it wasn't many. Laura does give a very good bibliography in the back and explains it all. About the the Jonestown vortex... Mm. You know, you start reading, you get caught in. Yeah. I think it might be a little bit like um, JFK's murder, you know, and all the things around and about it. Yeah, there's a lot of conspiracies. There's a lot of different avenues you can go down when you start researching Jonestown. Um, Yeah, so it's (sighs) no wonder people get caught up in it. (laughs) Well, I've been speaking with Laura Elizabeth Woolert about her book, Beautiful Revolutionary. It's a scribe book and it's quite a read. Quite a read. Well, I haven't really got a segue to get from Jonestown <laughs> to my book, but um, we'll make a start anyway. 
Myth and fantasy exist in every culture. Now, Rebecca Lim has integrated Chinese myth and an Australian setting in her Children of the Dragon series, and the book is called The Relic of the Blue Dragon. So, Rebecca, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks very much for having me again. Oh, pleasure. Now, your protagonist here is Harley Spark, and you pick up on the fundamentals of his character in the very first line. Harley Spark, 13 years and 20 days old, had never stolen anything in his life. And so there are two sorts of uh, adolescent tropes there, uh, fixation with age and then this temptation. So what got you into the character here of Harley? When you write for kids, you always tread a really fine line and you kind of want to say, stealing is really bad, kids, you shouldn't do it. But then it's a really good way to lead you on an adventure. You know, when you see something on the footpath. But it's also, you know, this temptation that exists. I can remember as a child, you know, being in a shop thinking, well, you know, I could. There's so much out there. Yeah, I know. And so, I mean, for for me, it's like, you know, you, you don't want to encourage people to be stealing, but it does kick off this massive adventure and it also sort of ties into Harley's slightly shady background because his father may or may not be an international art thief. Well, I was going to get on to the father a little later, but he has that background and his mother's been telling him not to, which is almost like a temptation to actually Exactly, because yeah, you always do what your parents um, tell you not to, to not do. Not to do, but to experience it, to see what uh, is the fascination. So you've got that adolescent mindset there uh, with a 13-year-old and uh, 13 years old and 20 days, that, <laughs> that sort of fixation. Now, the vase. The vase is important, and I'm just going to read out here. Um, is it vase or vase? I'm not sure, actually. I've always said vase, but I do know, like, is vase an American way of saying it? No, it's it? South Australian. Sure. Is it? Yes. Okay, maybe it's the proper English way to say it. Uh, I don't who, know. Who knows? <laughs> the vase wasn't very big or very heavy. It was maybe 30 centimetres high, with one very long azure-coloured Chinese dragon looped and coiled around and around the body and neck of the vase on a cracked white background. The dragon was side-on with its head tilted slightly towards him so that Harley could make out two golden stag-like horns and two burning gold eyes with black centres ringed in a thin line of blue, which had such a lively, inquisitive expression that the painted dragon seemed almost alive. The dragon's four legs ended in talons kind of like an eagle, so with five claws on each foot instead of four and it had no wings. Its rippling, snake-like body had scales like a fish, and a large, almost translucent pearl was suspended beneath its jaws. Harley, staring hard at the coils of the beast, could have sworn that he saw them move, just for a moment, the way a wave at the beach might do on a sunny day. (laughs) Now, the significance, and excuse my ignorance, but... Is there a particular significance of these sorts of uh, items in Chinese culture? Um, the the thing I wanted to do, because um, I grew up reading books that didn't have children like me in them, and, and the dragons that we usually see in the books for children are Western dragons. So, mm. you know, they're evil, they collect treasure, they kill people, you know, they kind of haunt dwarves, that kind of thing. But for Chinese people, our dragons are quite benevolent. They're kind, they bring fortune, they can control weather. So they're quite different creatures. And so um, my children now are sort of the same age I was when I was reading fantasy. And I just wanted to show them that there's another way of doing 
dragons and that they can see kids like them in the stories that they read as well. I mean, I'm, you know, quite advanced in years now and I think that hasn't moved on, you know, in children's books that the fantasy sort of hasn't, it really hasn't shifted. There's lots of books about talking animals, for example, but you don't necessarily see African fantasy or Chinese fantasy, especially in Australian books. Yes, but what you're doing, and it's sort of, uh, I'm jumping ahead to a a question I had in the future, you're integrating this uh, Chinese, well, integrating Chinese and Australian culture because the setting is Australian. It's fully Australian. The State Library of Victoria makes an appearance, Swanston Street, trams, all that kind of stuff. All of that sort of thing. So there's the setting, but then that Chinese, the Chinese artefacts. But are these artefacts in China imbued with mythic power as well? Um, I, I mean, there's this, there's this saying that, you know, the Chinese race are like the children of the dragon. We descended from dragons. And so there are many different ethnic um, tribes in China, but a lot of them have these creation myths where we descended from, you know, these divine beings who aren't necessarily human. So... Um, yeah, I just wanted to marry in some of the stuff that I used to see when I was a kid because you used to go to the grocery store for Chinese groceries and you'd pick up, you know, sort of bootleg DVDs with those, you know, crazy martial arts series that went forever with people with crazy hairstyles. And yeah, I just wanted to take all that stuff from my childhood and sort of build but, it into but this. are they the stereotypical tropes? Uh, is there something more... Uh, profound or consistent going through the Chinese vein? I think with us, I mean, you know, the supernatural for us is is just sort of next door to reality. Like for a lot of us, because, you know, we go and clean our ancestors' graves and we leave offerings for them, for us, you know, that kind of... Even like I'm a Christian, so I've got to marry all this stuff in together. But you've got this whole aspect of your cultural background, which says ghosts are real, demons are real, people can have supernatural powers, people can turn into foxes, people can turn into snakes, all this kind of stuff. So it's trying to marry all that together. But it's something of which we're ignorant in many ways. The the European uh, culture is ignorant of... And the European cinematic tradition is quite different from yes. ours. Because, you know, you do see ours and you see people running up walls and you see people, you know, flying from tree to tree and, you know... In some respects, our mythology, it absolutely used to happen that people could do this stuff. You know, we kind of think, yeah, maybe we've lost the ability to do this. But, you know, that whole that saying, crouching tiger, hidden dragon, mm. I mean, that that is to talk about people with extraordinary abilities who are hidden amongst us every day. So there's that sort of element of magic, I guess, in, in the background of our history and our culture. So I wanted to build that in. But this vase that we're talking about has uh, somebody in it, so to speak. Somebody trapped inside. Somebody trapped inside. And that goes back in time to when she was trapped inside. And again, you're going to have to correct my pronunciation. Quinn, is it? It's actually Ching. So like Chi, like when we speak of that, you know, that invisible energy force that, you know, George Lucas co-opted for Star Wars, that kind of thing is, you know, Hmm. sort of the thing that she practices in. But she's been trapped inside the vase. Uh, But interestingly enough, she hasn't got a name in the first... uh, the first few chapters of the book because there's this difficulty with communication in the first few chapters, Mm. which I found interesting because it's given you the opportunity to bring in Chinese characters and almost is there a hidden message there about communication? Um, There is. I think the assumption a lot with children's books is that everyone is from the same background and knows everything immediately. And um, for me, because I was a migrant child, when I came here, I think for the first few years of my life, I just spoke Mandarin or, you know, the dialect that whoever was speaking to me was using. And so I remember getting to kindergarten and just thinking, what am I doing here? Why do we have to sit on this oblong carpet? What does that mean? Like literally... Why is that kid being dragged home to, from from school? Well, because he's wet his pants. So if you wet your pants, that's really bad. So I remember that um, 
you know, that feeling of what the hell is going on? I've got to try and work out what the ground rules are so I can start, you know, acting like everyone else. And so I think I wanted to try and put that into this character because, you know, it's it's kind of, I suppose, a small comment on migrants and refugees. They have no context, you know, for lots of the things that they're seeing. They cannot understand what people are saying to them. They can't understand any of the background. And so... I wanted to give this character, I guess, a supercharged kind of migrant experience. She's literally burst out of this thing after 2,000 years. She's in a house and she's never seen a clock before. She doesn't know what television is. She has no idea how to turn anything on. Who are these people? What time is it? So I just wanted kids to get that feeling of not everyone's like you. Not everyone has the same comfortable background. Maybe they've come here and they're trying desperately to work out how to function But in it also society. gives Harley an insight into how others might communicate so you can see it from the other side then Mm. and you've got the Chinese characters and they're almost well not fully explained but but you get the sense of where the Chinese characters emanate from or some Mm. of them yeah some of the origins so you know for people you've got like basically two sticks that look like someone walking and so like for me as well because my Chinese character writing is very very poor I had to go back and find characters that were sort of basic enough and I guess bronze age enough to make sense to people looking at them because this then uh Jing it goes to the state library as you say sort of through mythic magic powers Mm. and explores old Chinese texts because the Chinese writing is it's all changed it's enormously changed over time so she's sort of basically working backwards from where we are now to where we were before and just trying to work out language yeah And so I have her pillaging the linguistic section of the State Library and leaving books out everywhere because overnight she's just gone, I've just got to read everything so I can work out what's happening and then I can maybe speak to these people. And fortunately she does learn, so she's a very quick learner. Um, Lucky for her, yes. (laughs) And lucky for her. All of us, yeah. You know, it moves the story along magnificently when she can actually speak. So, yeah, Yeah, it's good. But also talking about moving the story along, you you then escalate the action. I mean, you have, as you mentioned before, Harley's father, Ray, and there's something suspicious going on there because at one stage he's Ray's saying, I'm supposed to be a ghost. Now, we never actually find out uh, Ray's true calling, sort of? I think it'll be a bit clearer in the next book what his true calling is, but I think um, what, what Ray functions as is, you know, like in a lot of families as well, it's no longer nuclear families these days. And so Ray is the absent father who does something slightly dodgy that no one ever wants to talk about. And so for Harley, it's a, do I take after my mother who's a really good ethical law-abiding person or do I take after my dad who's slightly shady and has all these exciting connections overseas? So now, I'm, you've posed a problem there for adolescents because Ray's probably... Um, a more attractive character in that term. That's true. So you're kind of walking this tightrope of, you know, I can't say all this stealing stuff is really, really good because otherwise people want to do it. So, yeah, there's there's that kind of tightrope you have to walk as well. Um, but, yes, as – well, the, the fact that Ray is – not well we don't find out what Ray's true calling is as I said but that leads into a whole series so how many have you got in the series that are planned um because I'm only a mildly successful children's author um I think at this point it's two books and so it just depends on whether there's you know whether there's you've alluded appetite to, for you've alluded to so many other vases I have and so that's to give me a graceful you know way to keep on extending it if people can you know want to read this and that's the thing as well like um, there aren't that many books like this around, and so I guess um, it, it just depends on whether. People... Well, it's got a cross cultural benefit because if you could imagine, and you surely have imagined it being read in China for the Australian connection, I mean, that would work 
It, it would well work, indeed. and it'd be lovely. Someone in China, if you want to publish this, this would be really lovely, but anyway. But hang, then there's also, um, I mean, we're used to the mafia in, in uh, European culture, and you're going to have to correct my pronunciation again. There's the sinister Shushu Pang. Uh, it's just Choo Choo Pang, actually. Choo-choo. Yeah, it's just Choo Choo Pang. Because it, like it just sounds funny. Yeah, no, cause I did that because it sounded comic. But, um, yeah, there's, there is a sinister grandmaster who knows about 56 different martial arts, so he'll pop up. How, how, do, how do the sinister characters in... in the Chinese culture differ from European culture. Um, I don't know. I think I don't think he's overtly, you know, covered in muscles, but he um he just sort of exudes a malevolence. Well, he's, he's, he's a malevolence, but he's got a, a coterie of, of henchmen. Henchmen, that yeah. Are henchmen going are always useful. So I think, yeah, in in our culture, probably the um the really powerful people have a carfuls of people that follow them around <laughs> to keep them safe. We are going to have to finish shortly, but the challenge then of maintaining the pace you've got here in this story that that is true like um for, for children like you cannot have filler they just they will not read if you decide to go off on a tangent about you know a big issue of the day or something children will just switch off so um the challenge for this is to just make sure there are no flat spots that things keep happening there are cliffhangers that will constantly keep you engaged because kids are real connoisseurs of this and they just don't want to be sidetracked by you know, other stuff that they don't necessarily need to know. They just want to keep pushing on with the mystery. And so the pace is just compelling as it keeps Hopefully it keeps going, going at a breakneck speed. So. so the book is The Relic of the Blue Dragon. Uh, it's part of a, so far, two-part Children of the Dragon series, but I'm sure it's going to extend further into several other Crossing colours, fingers, crossing fingers. Several so we'll other colours. And it's an Alan and Unwin publication. So, Rebecca, thanks for coming thanks in Thanks so much. Thanks, David and Jan. And I was speaking with Laura Elizabeth Woollett on her book, Beautiful Revolutionary, all about Jim Jones and Jonestown. Thank you, Laura. That was published by Scribe, I should Published said. by Scribe. Well, we'll see or tune in next week and we'll see a couple more authors in here.